I'm Evan Smith. I'm the Editor-in-Chief and CEO of the Tribune. I want to thank you for your time this weekend and coming to support this festival. Had a great start so far, and I'm excited about the program I'm about to introduce. You may know that, uh, uh, first let me just say, if you're tweeting or using Instagram, we ask that you use the hashtag TribuneFest. That is the preferred hashtag for this whole weekend. Um, you may know that last year at the festival we had four tracks, education, immigration, healthcare, and energy. This year we added two additional ones, law and order and trade and transportation. Uh, when we added transportation, everybody assumed we meant roads and rail, which is understandable. Uh, but air travel is as much of a part of the daily transportation conversation in Texas. We treat short-haul flights from Austin to Houston, from Dallas to El Paso, from San Antonio to Lubbock, like our own personal bus service of the air. Until very recently, three major airlines had their corporate headquarters here, Southwest, American, and Continental. United is now not headquartered here right. officially. Our guest this morning, who has a grizzled veteran's perspective <laughs> on how airlines and the industry have changed, spent nearly 10 years running Continental, which merged with United Airlines in 2010 and ceased to exist, to my dismay, as a flyer, as a brand in March of this year except I've kept it in my web browser. When I go to the United page, I actually still have Continental listed on the internet, and I'm refusing to get rid of that for my browser. From 1994 to 2004, Gordon Bethune was Continental's CEO. For much of that time, he was the company's board chairman as well. He is widely acclaimed for leading one of the most dramatic corporate turnarounds in U.S. history, taking the airline from worst to first in on-time performance, customer complaints, and other metrics of success. A native of San Antonio, Mr. Bethune has a bachelor's of science degree from Abilene Christian University and is a graduate of Harvard Business School's Advanced Management Program. Before joining the Continental team, he was a Vice President and General Manager at the Boeing Commercial Airplane Group, responsible for the 737 and 757 airplanes. He previously held senior management positions at Braniff, blast from the past, and Piedmont, blast from the past, airlines. He also served in the U.S. Navy as an aircraft maintenance officer, which I hope we'll talk about because I always liked that about you, that you'd actually been inside the guts of the plane before you ran the company. In any case, it's an honor to connect with him again and to have him here. Please join me in welcoming Gordon Bethune. It is nice to see you. Thank you, Evan. Um, is this a good time, Mr. Bethune, liberated from the job of running a company? Gordon, Gordon. okay. Liberated from the job of running a company, I expect you can be more candid than, than, than you would have been able to be. So let me ask you straight away, is this a good time to be running an airline? Not, not, not especially. I mean, there's transformative change going on in the economy. Right. And therefore, there's a lot of doubt in the economy, which doesn't relate to spending money on leisure travel. Mm -hmm. So people tend to hold back instead of taking that vacation, save that money, and let's just see what happens here. So uh, while it, the economy is still considerably robust, the consolidation and some of the self-fixes that the transportation, that the airlines are doing, are more beneficial today than they have been in the past. So from that perspective, it's, it's, uh, it's okay. Yeah. But it's still a crummy business. It's a crummy, <laughs> and, and, but when you say crummy, I go on airplanes to fly around Texas and fly around the country all the time. They're full. I'm constantly in a middle seat. Yeah. <laughs> if it, it, you know, if it's a middle seat economy, how bad can the industry actually be? Well, you need to read the income statement and uh, in the balance sheet. Well, help me understand how to do that. Well, yeah, it's a low margin business, like the grocery business. So, except that our, we always said, what, what do you, why do all the numbers have parentheses around them? And I said, well, it's their losses. Okay. 
and is very, very competitive. It's almost uh, a commodity in many respects. Mm -hmm. And so you're constantly under attack. So what's happened is with consolidation, i.e. Continental United, and scale, you're becoming to where you're less vulnerable to some whack off who starts an airline and charges. That's a term of science, by yes, the way. It's yes, a okay. it's an airline term. But it's, uh, uh, we had, I think, at one time, 20 airlines in this country. France has one. Germany has one. No, I told the Department of Transportation, Continental can do it. We don't need another 19. But unfortunately, you know, it, what did P.T. Barnum say? There's a sucker born every minute, and they usually invest in the airline business and start a new airline. Right. And so you're fighting that off constantly, a guy running for cash, and you're pricing so he doesn't buy your customer. You can't let somebody buy your customer, so you match their price to your detriment. Right. And, and until they die and go away, you're going to suffer. Fortunately, that's kind of narrowed down to where after you have enough failures, people don't put their pension plan investments in airlines and you can't raise the investment capital any longer to start an airline because you can't find that many stupid people. So that is narrowing and that's becoming a better place. And that's why there are fewer airlines. One of the yeah, consequences of this is I mentioned Braniff and Piedmont. We know the graveyard is littered with the brands that used to exist that we used to take for granted as airlines and no longer exist now. And, 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 and to use the term graveyard on a company like Piedmont, which is probably one of the premier companies in America, but was acquired by what we used to call Agony, Allegheny Airlines, now called U.S. Air. They were bought at a huge premium to market because they were so successful. Continental was merged with United only because it was so hugely successful and is at the very top of the charts with good margins and a, and a much better balance sheet. So while that name is gone, it didn't go, didn't gone by default. Right, it's, it's gone because it's too damn. So good the suggestion that Piedmont or Continental are both gone because they failed is not actually true. No, actually, because they're gone because they were very successful. Right, and a threat to the rest. I of I want them. to come back to the United and Continental merger here in, in a little while, but let me flip the original question around. I asked if this is a good time to be in the airline airline business. Is it a good time to be an airline passenger? My middle seat problem, notwithstanding. Absolutely. One, take a look at the technology that's used. Electronic boarding passes. Take away the government's TSA and security because that's not an airline issue. Well, but we're going to have to talk about that. Well, that's one of the things that's a disincentive to fly these days. Well, and, and our government works really hard to have a disincentive to, to visit the Texas Medical Center because you're a rich Saudi Arabian and you want to you have cancer, and you used to fly to MD Anderson. You can't do it anymore because you got to wait a month to get a visa. So they go to Germany. Our government has a lot of barriers to success in this business, and then right. that extrapolates us barriers of the success of the Texas Medical Center after 9-11. Well, we'll come to the TSA okay. stuff, but so talk about purely from the non-government side, being an airline passenger you think is a good time. Well, live TV. We never had live TV, right? You have, you have that kind of reliability and dependability of modern airplanes. You heard I was a Boeing guy, so I'm parochial. But the airplanes are safer today than they've ever been in a million years. I mean, there's so many built-in safety features that weren't available even 10 years ago. Right. So consistency, reliability, it's like the, this wristwatch, right? I wouldn't wear this watch unless it was reliable because it, I only count on it for dependable information. Mm -hmm. And if it were slowing down, it would lose a lot of value. Because of technology and because systems are becoming far advanced, yeah, like a yeah, computer system. We're running a better, consistent, 
on-time airline. Now, it doesn't seem that way when your airline's late. Well, when you're sitting in the airport because your flight's been delayed, yeah. you don't think to yourself, boy, this is a great time to be a passenger. At the same time, though, in a horse race, you don't have to be the fastest horse race on the planet. You just have to beat the horses in this race. <laughs> right. Okay, so it's a relative. It's relative. Term. And so I always said, how do you measure success? If I were to ask the audience and I'd say, somebody would say, who, who makes the most money? Someone would say, who's got the most power, like in your former session? Yeah. And some guy would say, who's got the most girlfriends? In our air business, it's who's the most reliable, consistent airline. That's, That's the, the big metric? That's the one? Well, it's the one I always pick because when I ask, you ask customers what they want, they say, I want to get to my destination safely on time with my underwear. I said, shall let's do that. Let's try that yeah. and see if it works. And it turned out to be a very successful formula. Yeah. The, the, the technology that you alluded to, you mentioned the, the, the electronic boarding passes, which is a convenience, but not for every airline. Well, right? and, and of course, we just came in from Houston yesterday, and they have something called TSA PreCheck. So if you register earlier and you've been in the country long enough and you have all the background, you randomly get to just kind of go through a really fast lane. And the rest of the people. So that's one way the technology, I mean, again, government it's, notwithstanding, it's one it, way technology benefits. There, there's, a, there's a thing called GOES when you enter the country and you put your passport. If you register, you don't go into the immigration lines with everybody else. You just run, right. it, take, it scans your retina, it takes your fingerprints, and admits you to the country. And that's another way, again, five, Once ten it, years ago, didn't Easy, easy, right. So, but know. again, back to this boarding pass thing. So, um, uh, I mean, this is, again, personal experience. United slash continental, mm -hmm. you do that. American, you do that. Southwest, at least as of right now, right, unless I'm mistaken, no. can't do that. So not everybody is adopting the same technology. It was ironic because there's a way of thinking about it, and of course that shows, it manifests itself in the way the company thinks, is the way the CEO thinks. Pre-9-11, we had invested so much money in technology that we had boarding pass kiosks. No one had boarding pass kiosks. But we're trying to offload the, the productivity or the staffing requirements right. that you get your own boarding pass. After 9-11, you might recall, they changed the rules that you couldn't go past security and meet somebody at the gate. You had to have a boarding pass. Right. Southwest had people backed up into the streets. We were just going to the kiosk and processing passengers. But then right away, Southwest gets kiosks. They have to right. because they were forced to. No so choice. some companies go you know, with a gun to their forehead into technology, yeah. and others are leading the way with technology. Right. Continental has always led the way. Well, but except I'm thinking on the, on, on the front side of all this, going to book your own reservations. I believe, was American the first, really, with that Sabre Saber Saber system? system a absolutely. Where you could go on and actually take control of your own travel, basically destroying the travel agent industry? I always think of Continental as the old Continental, which had a red meatball, and the Frank Lorenzo and the union busing, and then the Continental that we became in 94, when we said, why don't we knock this off, treat each other with some dignity and respect, and then run an airline that you'd be proud to work. Yeah. And so that shift, I think, that's because I think management does, we lost $640 million in 1994. First year I was there, I was a number two man. And I didn't take over the comp company until November. The next year we made $225 million. So we went from negative 640. Almost a $900 million turnaround. With the same people and the same airplanes going to the same city. So there's nothing wrong with them. Well, I want, I want you to get okay. into that. I mean, you wrote a book and, you know, you've talked about this at length over the years. But I really want to understand the worst to first story from your perspective. You come in, it's a disaster. How did you do it? Well, we've met, we use the metrics of success that customers use. And, of course, we use the metrics of success that investors use. But in, we said we were losing about $6 million being late. 
being so late. So being late. That's putting people on American, putting them in hotels, driving them across town. And I asked about our flight schedule, and I said, who writes the flight schedule? Well, you know, marketing. And I said, what block times? That's the time that you block off the gate to block in the gate. That includes the taxi and all the time. And they said, we use average times. And I said, well, there's nothing. I'm, I'm a Boeing pilot and mechanic. Uh, there's nothing average about flying between Houston and New York. It's different on Tuesday than it is on Sunday. It's different in the winter than it is in the summer. So I want operations to write the schedule. You tell them where to go and when, but the time that we put in that block yep. is what we're measured on this on time. And if you get in the top half of the 10 ranking airlines at the DOT ranks, we've always been dead last. We were, we were ninth, but they added the 10th airline, so we snapped in and held 10th. I mean, we were right. not <laughs> going to give that place this up. This one goes to 10th. Yeah. Right, yeah. And I said, I'll give you, if you come to the top five, I'll give you half of the money. I'll give you three million bucks, and we'll distribute it amongst all the employees. Really, so you gave an incentive to the employees: help us get there, and we'll share in the in the right. savings. Right, and it turned out to be sixty-five dollars. And my lieutenant said, "You're not going to get anybody's attention for sixty-five bucks." I said, "You know, Donald Trump spots three twenties and a five. He picks it up. Bulls hockey, right? Sixty-five bucks is sixty-five bucks." So the first year we did it was February '95. We came in fourth place. Everybody. So within one, within one year, you went from tenth to fourth. Right, fourth. Yeah. And for the first year we implemented that program, yeah. first month. And everybody got a check, and I wouldn't let them put the check in the, in the big check, the electronic transfers, and no FICA. This is at 65 bucks, and it had a memo. Thank you for helping us be on time. Every, my secretary got checked. Everybody who worked there got a check. She asked her friend, she says, as she opened it, are you going to tell your husband about this check? I said, hell no. And so, you know, there's this kind of like underground, nobody had ever given them money at Continental to do something. Always had lawyers taking their money away from them, and now you're getting extra money. And in March, we came in first place. And we had never been first place ever. And everybody got another check. And in April, we came in first place again. And everybody got another check. We showed ourselves, I think it's more of a self-awareness. And let me just tell you how that dynamics change, see. In operations, and I'm an operations guy. Right. You review the previous delays and cancellations from before, and the beatings begin, the indictments are served, and everybody is saying it's the pilot's fault, it's the mechanic's fault. So as long as it wasn't you, yeah. you really don't care. But when it, you don't get paid unless you beat American United to Delta, then it doesn't matter why you're late, you're late. Right. So we're leaving Houston for New York, 200 air people airplane, uh, 20 meals short. In those days, we had meals in the back. And the leading flight attendant says, I'm not leaving without the 20 meals. Our caterer says, I don't have the 20 meals here. I got to go to the kitchen, which is 20 minutes away. She said, it's your problem, Buster. And we would all sit on an airplane for 20 minutes waiting for those meals. About 20 meals. Yeah. And we'd be late into New York and be late. She would say, don't you do this to me again. She'd close the door. He didn't want to do it, right? But she would find people, mostly Texans, who would trade their booze for food. I mean, just get the damn, <laughs> you know. Te Texans are so <laughs> helpful in that yeah. way. Yeah. But, but we would get to New York on time because she wanted that money and she worked around whatever problem. And so you change the way you think. Yeah. And we introduced a concept called profit sharing, which they, that wasn't in their lexicon that Continental Profit wasn't a word they had recognized. And I said, if the employee, if the investors win, if make money, then you should win. And if they lose, you should lose. Now, the psychology there is, is that when you're working full airplanes, you're working harder. 
you got more bags to put away, you got yep. more tickets, you got loading, you got all the processing. And, and so you start resenting the customers because you're just full every flight. And that's why the United, we used to call their flight attendants Sky Nazis because they said shut up, Scott, sit down. Sky Nazis. That's what was the name yeah. for them. Shut up, sit down. Right, because what's in it for them? And they resent you because yeah. they're full too. But when you get 15% of the money, which I said 15% of the money goes to you, we're glad to see you. Let me find a place for it. So the attitude changes about how employees see you. Yeah. You're a source of, of revenue to them on time if we get our act together. You're a source of revenue if there's more of you than less of you. So we all get on the same canoe where the employees, the customers, and the owners, shareholders, are all in the same canoe. Yeah. And one end of the canoe cannot be doing good if the other's sinking. So you get this balance between providing a good service, yep. treating each other well, and sharing in the reward. So that's how the on-time piece turned around. That's how the culture turned around, well, because we, were like, we said before in 1994, they had been played off against each other yeah. for scarce resources. So the flight attendants hated the gate agents who hated the pilots, and everybody's trying to screw everybody. We knocked that off. I actually hired Rodney Dangerfield to help me. And he's, I can't get no respect. We treat each other with dignity and respect. And until you start treating each other that way, you won't treat the customer that way. Right. So we enforced yeah. a rigorous, you don't, and we fired people who wouldn't do that. So, that, that, so that cuts across from on-time performance to, to lost bags. I know lost bags or baggage mishandling oh. was another category in which you were worst. Well, and we, went to first, and of course it seems to me that the bags are someplace. So th that's more of a tangible thing. That's less attitudinal. The but bag is tangible. Where did it go? It How did missed, you fix that? It, mixed the, it missed the connection. If the connection had been made, the bag doesn't get lost. So it ties back to on time. Everything yeah. drives. It's like your heartbeat. Everything on you ties to that yeah. one thing signal. And so if you can get yourself on time, first of all, you know who are the biggest benefactors of on time? The employees. You're not coming across the counter, counter saying, you son of a gun, you canceled my flight. You don't say, hey, where's my bag? You don't bitch about it because you're late and you missed your connection. Right. They get to make their daughter's recital. It's kind of a pleasant place to work. There's no forced overtime because... Well, there's probably a cost associated with fixing the problem, and, too, right? And, and the cost to the employee's own personal life, how he's treated or she's treated. Yeah. They used to, in 94, they would take the Continental signs off their uniforms to go to the grocery <laughs> store because they didn't want to hear from you how you lost their bag. They didn't want to be identified as Absolutely, right. not yeah. at all. And so, but when we became, and they used to say, oh, well, I'm Old People's Express, or I'm TI, or I'm, I'm Frontier, the amalgamation that became Continental. Yeah. When we became number one, they'd all say, I'm Continental. Yeah. And it's like being the Dallas Cowboys. When we win, everybody got a ring. Yeah. Everybody or nobody. Yeah. And so it's a ch cultural change, but it's more than that. It's like a focus on, you said I went to Harvard Advanced Management. We were writing a plan to turn around Continental in my living room, and we did it over dinners, myself and a consultant. And uh, we called them last suppers because with our cash, we didn't know it was going to be last. <laughs> and uh, we were flying, 20% of the flying was cash negative. Evan, that means you could set the parking brake, evacuate the airplane, save money, right? So I said, I've got this great idea of being a market strategist. I said, why don't we fly to places people want to go to? I said, shit, write that down. That was so, <laughs> that was so incisive. <laughs> and so the first, first step, the first step in making money is to stop doing things that lose money. Don't you understand how simple that is to stop it? 
But the, the idea is simple, but if it were that easy, Gordon, you understand this, they'd all be doing it. Well, it's because they all went to HBS and thought it was more complicated than that. Right. And they want it to be more complicated. And, and quite frankly, you made a point. If you and I were going to start, let's say, a, a watch sales and service business, yeah. wouldn't it be helpful for one of us to know how a watch actually works? It helps. Okay. Right. So today, in a lot of companies, and especially in the airline business, you'll see guys who have never fixed an airplane. They're they finance to, guys, right? They don't know how to fly it. They don't know how, to, how it is to feel being on a third shift, running the baggage locker. And, and it kind of helps to identify that this is a consequence right. of this policy. And so some companies run better than others depending upon who's, who's you were You were literally, it's not yeah. incorrect, so you were a mechanic. Well, in here, let me tell you what I learned about being a mechanic, because yeah. you're nobody when you're a mechanic, right? Except that you're the only guy who knows how to fix the airplane. But if you got treated with less, it's like taking your girlfriend for granted, she's gonna show you you shouldn't have done that one way or another. So if you treated me like with less than the respect I thought, you know how much faster I could fix your airplane when I wanted to fix it than when I didn't want to fix it? I'll call you when it's ready. You know? That's kind of the way it works. So today, if employees want, let me tell you the difference between doing a good employee satisfaction actually is, is while your accountant doesn't get it, you need to get it if you're running a business. There was a power grid failure on the East Coast 12 years ago, the whole East Coast. Friday night, it was 4 o'clock. New York went dark. Now, we're really big in New York, right across the river. New one York one of your hubs. Yes, one of the, one of the best international hubs, Continental yeah. Rand. American, JFK, and LaGuardia. That night, they canceled 200 flights. United Delta, proportionally, LaGuardia, JFK. We canceled seven flights, seven. We had people on the sidewalks with flashlights, and they were hearing that Continental's still running. So they get in a cab all the way in Queens and JFK, come all the way to Newark, pull up and look at the ticket. If it had an F or a Y on it, they walk you through a hand-wound security, through a dark terminal to an airplane that had light, boom, took you to New York. We made 200 million, we made two million bucks that night. I said, turn the lights off every night. Shift. <laughs> I mean, this was work. And so at an analyst conference, they said, how come you were flying and everybody else was canceling? Is because our employees wanted to. Yeah. So if you have employees that want to do a good job, they yeah. find a way to do it. If they're ambivalent, things get in their way. Right. And if they hate your guts, they're looking to do something. So I, I guess it does make sense that if you're at the low end of the totem pole, you have an appreciation for those at the low end when you're at the top. It helps to remember that where you came from. Where you were. And, 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 and quite frankly, mechanics are exactly that way today as they were 40 years ago when I was a mechanic. Yeah, exactly. that, that part hasn't changed. Human nature. Right. Well, yeah. girlfriends haven't changed. They're the same way. Take it for granted. You'll find out. Um, <laughs> let me ask you about a big thing that changed uh, while you were in the job, and that is you know, not the post-9-11 versus the pre-9-11. Let me ask you if you can call it back up what you were thinking as an airline executive that day. Because it was, it was a hell of a day for the airline business along with the country. Yeah. Different reasons, similar reasons, but there you go. We, we had a, a board meeting that day in the Four Seasons downtown Houston. And I, it, they hit the first tower before I was just leaving home. And then we had TV screens, so our board was there and saw the second tower go. And we had the big financial 202 books. And I took all the books and I just threw them in the trash can. I mean, that, that was it for that. Uh, we had 158 airplanes in the air at the time, and we didn't know who was going to be next. And that all those guys had taken off out of Newark, and that's where we are, so we thought proportionally. So until we counted down, 
the 158 were safe, we didn't know. But everybody had to land wherever the nearest airport was. Now we had incorporated some years earlier something called the Daily News Update, which every day on a bulletin board, 700 of them around the kit, we said what our stock did, what our on time did, who did what to and whom in our company and in our, in our industry. We transcribed that into a voicemail where you could be in Lima, Peru, in your hotel room and call and see what's going on in the company. It would be a recorded deal. Well, our people who were coming out of Tokyo were landing in some place in Montana, went to the hotel room, got that 800 number and called up. We updated it five times a day. So we know you're there, we're working with the FAA and we can just kind of bring them. Delta and United crews waited in the lobby for our people to come down and tell them what was going on. So you get this trust where they go to where they know where they can find information. Yep. And then when you run into the 9-11s or you run into contract negotiations where there's a lot of misinformation and crap out there, they know where they can go. And mm -hmm. you have a rule. You never lie to your own doctor. That's kind of stupid. You never lie to your own lawyer. You lie to his lawyer, but don't lie to yours. And you never lie to your employees because you lose all your credibility and yep. you'll never get their trust again. So we never lied. Yep. Kept them up to date. Every day time, you yep. could find out what was going on. And when they really wanted to know, guess what? They just called up. How, but Gordon, I want to know how much risk were you really at at that time? Well, w was I mean, there a possibility that from the financial side of this that you guys were going to go under? Well, we, we, for those four days, we, you know, expenses don't go away. We were running about $10 billion through the company. We're spending nine and a half billion to make the 10, so we had about 500 of op income, 500 million. Overnight, we lost 20% of the business. So you do the math, now you're an eight and a half billion dollar company spending nine and a half. Now let's see how much money do we have? And so we did on the back of a piece of envelope, how long Americans gonna last, how long we're gonna last, and we just had, a, we had to tell the Congress and the world, lay off 12,000 people immediately, and this is a new reality. And uh, the government offered a loan guarantee program, so we were able to raise money in the private market because they knew the government would loan us money if yep. they really ran into trouble. So we never took a government loan, but you know it was—it wasn't the end of the world. But you could see it from where we were, you know, pretty. Yeah. But the upshot of it, as we alluded to earlier, was that all of a sudden all these new requirements came into effect for all of us who fly. Right. Government put in all these requirements. Um, the perception unfairly is this was the airlines, the airlines fault. You know, when we go to the airport and the airline and you got to go through security and you miss your flight or you come close, there's all this anxiety about how long it takes. It's air travel's problem. In fact, it's not. It was just security and the government. Well, the But you all bore the, res the result of it. Though. First of all, it was a new trick, right? Nobody had ever done this before, so nobody saw it coming. Today, you know, you can't do that. The cockpit doors are impregnable. I mean, you're yeah. not going to get in there. Number two, if they call into the cockpit saying they're killing people here, they're not going to open the door. They're going to land at the nearest airport where the police will arrive and take care of it. So you can't do what they do anymore. Right. That, that's done. That instance that would happen on 9-11 would not happen the yeah, same way again. We do have a big kabuki at the airport of security where they take the 80-year-old grandmother and wander and do all these kind of non-value added, but we're the government and we're here to help you. And so I'm not sure security is any better than private security. I don't think you become a better security officer because you work for the government than you would be. Well, do you, is, is, is most of what we go through unnecessary, Gordon? It'll just be among the group in here. Just what? tell us privately. 
Absolutely. It is it, unnecessary. It, well, I, I believe it is. Well, at the same time, for uniformity, and they say, you know, you say, well, it's like looking for a needle in a haystack. I said, why don't you look in the needle factory? You stupid shit. I mean, <laughs> if you're looking for a needle, where would you go? And so. The 80-year-old grandmother is not my first choice of as a terrorist. She just wouldn't be really taking a lot of my attention. Yeah. So I think behavioral and taking a look at profiling people, just like they do in, in other forms of law enforcement, yeah. and we don't do that and in, in the interest of uniformity and right. you know, we're all treated equally. But, but, but you know, just like we do with the GOES account now that we can have retinas and we can have fingerprints, and we can... There are other ways to go at this, you think? And I the think way they're, we do it. And they're moving in that direction because they're seeing that, first of all, people are getting tired of it and because it costs a lot of money. Right. I mean, the cost of it is prohibitive. You know, I wonder when they suddenly make a change. Now, in some airports, in some circumstances, you don't have to take your shoes off. In some airports, in some circumstances, you don't have to take your it's belt off. It's called pre-check, pre-check. Right? right? The, 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 it doesn't seem consistent. Well, it's not, and the other thing is, is that uh, they said that 12-year-old children don't have to take their shoes off. So all of a sudden, I'm 13, now I'm a criminal. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so it's arbitrary, yeah. and, and I guess maybe there's no other way to do it. I don't want to be too critical, but at the same time, I think like any other government agency, it tends to grow, you yep. know, to the, and, and it's, it's grown. Disabuse us of something else that has come uh, to, to be a fact of our lives, and that is that somehow having my cell phone on at takeoff or up in the air yeah. is a threat to democracy. Well, to the fact that the, that the pilots themselves are using iPads instead of regular books to do their approach and landing charts, right, says that there's nothing wrong with it. It's, but what really is wrong with it is the voice communication. And then that's not a technological issue. That's punching the guy out next door that's sitting next to you for the last three hours bitching at Gabbing his employer. On the phone. Right. And so, you know, we're going to have that. Right. And so I would say that you're going to see a relaxation of all of those rules, except that you won't be allowed to talk, because that's intrusive and it will cause too many problems in there. So it's behavioral as opposed yeah, to a yeah. technological threat. Right. It's just simply people being unpleasant Absolutely. neighbors. Absolutely. That, and, and who would want to fly to London and listen to this guy talk about his investments? Why, why do I have to hope that my luck comes up every time I get on a plane w with Wi-Fi? Why don't just now, as a matter of course, all flights have Wi-Fi for passengers. Because it costs a lot of money. How much, I mean, what does that mean? Exactly? Well, it, the, the investment, capital investment of installing Wi-Fi on an airplane is very expensive. Now, this is the way people pick fares. They get on the computer and say, cheapest ticket to San Francisco, enter. You're at a list. And if you're not on that first screen, they rarely go to screen two. So if your fare has Wi-Fi and free baggage and free food, your fare is going to be higher. You're going to be on screen number four. Right. So you put the fare, which is what you're asked, what fare, you put that there. And that won't have Wi-Fi, and it might have two stops, you know, and it may be in the middle of the night. And so you'll start looking for one that has fewer stops, but you won't ask, what's the sandwich, or does the flight attendant have a Kate Spade handbag, or any of those non-value-added things. Yeah. And Wi-Fi is one of those things that you won't pay for. Don't ask people what they want. They'll write you an epistle, okay? Ask them what they want and will pay for it. Gets a real short list. Stick to that list. A, a, just, let me just take a, a random sample here of the room. How many people in here would pay a couple bucks extra per ticket if you could have Wi-Fi on a flight of a certain length? Huh? About half the room. And that's why they're offering it. 
yeah. but they're going to offer it probably as an add-on feature, just like they ask to check a bag. How many people check a bag? Well, some do, some don't. Well, frankly, the, the idea to have to pay to check a bag is so repulsive to me that I won't check a bag. Well, at the same time, I won't, I, won't, fly Southwest. I won't check a bag because I'm afraid they'll lose it. So, uh, and you've been inside yeah, the yeah. machine. You know, actually, yeah, that there's yeah. a, Boy, so, if you're afraid of losing a bag, that scares the heck out of me. Well, at the same time, the guys that don't check a bag are paying for you to check one. Now, wait a minute. I mean, when you go to the hamburger stand, and they say, you want cheese with that? You want fries with that? You, I mean, you, you pay for extras. You don't do You just ordered a hamburger. And I know that an association of fat people says that that's an impairment, so she ought to get two hamburgers because you're fat. But that's not the way it works. You've got to buy two hamburgers, right? So if you want more, you should pay for more. So you're, you, you believe that we should all be paying to check bags? I think you should pay for what you want. And if you don't want it, you shouldn't pay for it. And you ought to have that choice. So what the airline is doing is giving you the choice. Right. If you think bag's important to you, well, then that's 15 bucks or 25 bucks. Well, if it's not important to you, why should you pay for I it? I can understand how Wi-Fi would be optional, but checking my bag seems foundational to well, air let's, travel. Let's it's like asking me to pay for air or the toilet. Why don't we go to the fifth game of the World Series and say my grandfather was sick and I missed the game and I'd like my money back on my ticket. <laughs> Good well, luck. Life's not fair. Well, uh, so come on. We've kind of, kind of conditioned you to think that the bag's free. We've been under the government regulation until 1979 that said the bag is going to be free. It used to be regulated. Now it's un it's the most regulated, deregulated industry. But the expectation is, if you make my, if I miss my hundred-dollar ticket flight, you should put me up in the Four Seasons and pay for my food. And it's all expectations that are not fulfilled. So the expectation was set that yeah. you'd have a free that, bag. That's why the mindset is we think we should have free But bags. the demand is lower fares. That's what's driving behavior is lower right. fares. So wouldn't you offer the lowest fare if you could get to be at the top of the screen? Yeah. And if the guy wants a bag, we'll just add it all up. Most of this is sixth grade arithmetic, and I bet you everybody in this room can we do can, it. We, we can all do it. So add 50 bucks, and now you, now you know what it costs to, add to, to take two bags. But if you don't want to do that, Put one bag, and yeah. if you don't want to do that, don't check back. Yeah. You mentioned to me on the way up here that you flew Continental United, oh, pardon yeah. me, you flew United the other day for the first time since the merger. Last night, yeah. As a, as a, as a regular citizen, yeah, as a civilian. Nice, nice airplane. What did yeah. you think? It was very nice, and, 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 and they have a good product. It was absolutely uh, uh, pleasant. Now, here's the deal. Remember, I told you, well, I didn't tell you, but I should tell you, the, the, the definition of success is do you beat your competition? That's the definition. If you're in a horse race, you got to beat the other horses. You don't care about being the fastest horse in the middle. So there's 10 airlines generally. How do you do compared to the other in customer satisfaction, which is on time, baggage delivery, yada, yada. Unfortunately, United has been a sixth place horse runner or seven for years. Yeah. Well, Continental was consistently one, two, or three. Right. When do you quit paying or feeding a horse that always comes in six? Now, I'd ask you, if you were running a business, why don't you tell me how you beat your competitors and what you beat them at? And if you don't, I'd ask you, why not? Are you stupid? Do you not have the equipment? Or do you need more training? But there's no reason for you to always be a loser. But some companies, by culture, are a loser because they don't know how to win or don't care about winning. And so we have two different cultures clashing in this, in, merger. in this merger. 
one who is used to winning and used to profit sharing and used to have on time and used to being a winner to one that kind of likes it this way. Yeah. Kind of comfortable. Yeah. And we're having this integration problem saying well, who's going to prevail and how's, uh, you know. I can tell you what needs to happen, but what they're trying to do is like a salmon conceivably could spawn Niagara Falls. It's going to be a really rough trip, okay? Yeah. And that's what they're hitting. But, you know, you wonder why, why didn't United, sub, why wasn't United subsumed or, or sucked into Continental as opposed to the reverse? It seems like it was a reverse merger where the bad actor acquired the good actor and kept the bad actor's name so that the brand is now the name that gives people a bad taste in their mouth. Well, and, and, and they, they screwed up. I mean, at, at the end of the day, I wouldn't have done it. It's not what I, I would never go up the name Continental. Would you, have, would you have wanted to merge and you still been running the company? I tried to merge with, with United, but they wanted to run the company. I said, hell, you can't run water. I'm not going to let you run our company. I mean, yeah. and so. And you still believe that today, if it were up well, to you, you would rather have Continental. Continental management essentially took over United. Right, Jeff Smizek, who worked at the company yeah, when you were and there. and a brilliant man and yeah. a good man. And, and the top lieutenants all are running the company. But what they're running is a company who's still based in Chicago with a name that's still United. And as far as United employees, it's just another CEO. So why should they care? What you needed to do was take that name off that and says, you're not that anymore. You're this. You're this. And this is the way we work. And this is the way we win. And you psychologically change the channel on that employee. Yeah. But, you know, when they bought, the, they bought, United bought, the employees bought the company years ago, and they rewarded themselves with really great contracts because they ran the company. And it was like the inmates, you know, when they take over the asylum, then they broke into the pharmacy, and then they really started. So that put them into bankruptcy, and they came back out, kind yeah. of mediocre, still without direction, and now, now they have direction with leadership, but there's, that's a lot of years of conditioning to, be, to change people. People yeah. don't change overnight. Speaking of bankruptcy, Americans seems to be on the verge again of being in the drink. And, and th this has been essentially kind of the near-death experience airline for how many years now? Well, Laying a bunch of people off, canceling a lot of flights. You mentioned it, a couple of things, Evan. First of all, you said Texas had three airlines. In 1979, American moved to Dallas. I had worked at Braniff, and Braniff took their people for granted and took their mer because it regulated, right? Right, and so American came in with some competition, and Texas was just waiting to have somebody to run, and they and a guy named uh, Crandall, Bob Crandall, did that right. and put American on the map in Dallas. A charming, Texas. sweet man. But you know what? He's a good friend of mine, and yeah. he's usually correct. He may not <laughs> present it in a way that he yeah. endear he you. He was a tough character, but he's on the right track, and Kelleher. Herb Kelher, little guy, stayed up there in Dallas. And then Continental moved from L.A. and took over, but Texas International became Continental and it was based in Houston. So Texas attracted with tax structure and employees, right. uh, the, those three. American is one of those foolish companies, just like Continental was, that thinks bankruptcy can fix your company. And it can't. You know, well, they were bankrupt twice, 83 and 91, right? Bankruptcy can fix your balance sheet, but if you're a crummy company and you don't change, you're going to run through that money too. And so American has more than this bankruptcy facing them. They have a cultural change. You know the two A's on the tail? Yeah. You think it's American Airlines, right? One A is for arrogant, and the other is some part of their anatomy. And until they change a that. Aorta? Yeah, it yeah, could be, could be, yeah. Okay. I can't recall, but I know that it's, 
I think it's aorta. Yeah. There's an attitudinal yeah. issue here that unless you become a company that people kind of prefer to fly on, you're really not going to do well, except by default. And if you happen to be a DF, um, Dallas, Fort Worth, or a Miami person, and they don't have a lot of choice. Pretty much your option. Yeah, but why wouldn't you want, that's why we never gave up on San Antonio. We were just talking about it. I, I was born in San Antonio. And we were talking about Continental. I said, we're never giving up San Antonio. It's just as easy to go to London from San Antonio, Houston, than San Antonio, Dallas. So Austin, San Antonio, those are going to be Continental markets. Yeah. And we're going to earn that business. And we took it away from the American. You know why? Because we outperformed them on time, we outperformed them on bags, and we outperformed them on attitude. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's the lose. You mentioned Kelleher, and we've talked about Southwest a lot. Let me ask you before we open it up for questions to say a word or two about the impact of Southwest on your mindset about the business and as a competitor. Well, I mean, they're always, we've been a, their biggest competitor forever, Houston to everywhere, because they're big in Houston. So LA, you know, we, we, can, we offer services. They, they fly to Paris, Texas. We go to Paris, France. I mean, it's a, it's a different business. The recent incursion, because they've run out of ideas at Southwest, they're a great company and, uh, and fine people, but they have no place to go. They've, they've got 500 airplanes, but there's not two city fairs in America that somebody isn't already there. And I've told you, no one's ever going to let you buy their customers again, so you're not going to introduce a Southwest low fare that somebody's not going to match. American, United, doesn't matter. You're not, and good luck trying to beat Delta. Are, are united. So they conned the Houston City Council into letting them fly from Hobby internationally. Now that's the only city in the whole world that I know of that has two international departures. It's like shooting yourself in the foot because international means that like cities like Houston, you notice that Austin doesn't have a lot of international traffic. Right. There's not enough people that live here in Austin. But Houston has six million people so it can generate one with the feed coming from Lafayette, from Corpus Christi, from Phoenix, a flight, two flights a day to London, and Tokyo, and all kind of, Buenos Aires. And if you just had Houston, you would never get that. But because you have all these connections that connected the Buenos Aires flight, you enjoy daily flights from Houston to Buenos Aires. If you let, and split the airports internationally 30 miles apart, some of the connections will be over here at Hobby, and some of them will be down here at George Bush. Well, nobody's going to get in a car and drive to George Bush from Hobby. So if you're from France and you want to go to Cancun, you say, hmm, Continental used to have six flights a day to Cancun, but now they only have four because Southwest does two of them in Hobby. But if I go to Atlanta, I can connect within an hour. So you just don't come to George Bush, you just go to Atlanta. Or you go to DFW. So because we had a petulant mayor and the IQ of around 80 in their city council, they voted to let Hobby be an international airport. And so that's like, should every city council precinct have their own airport? This is stupid. I think your so, problem is that you don't speak your mind enough. Well, <laughs> I tried to explain it to them, but they get confused like more competition, like more ice cream stands is good. Airports are not in competition for more airlines. Airports are in competition with other cities. Atlanta is trying to outrun Houston. So is Dallas. 
and they attract businesses to move here because we have good air service. Yep. We have good streets, we have right. good roads, we have good education. Air service is a driver. It is. How did Houston beat Dallas and Atlanta over the last 15 years in economic growth? You know why? Air service. Put it around the world nonstop to Tokyo. Really good airline, yep. really run, and, and, and infrastructure. Good city, good schools, but good transportation. Now we've cut our transportation systems in half. We have two San Antonios. Okay, and Atlanta, and it's like it's not going to be a switch that you turn on and off like lights. It's like getting old. Every year it's going to be a little less. So in the next ten years, Houston will diminish economically, while Dallas and Atlanta. You think will it's grow. that it's that problematic? For oh, I know city. it is. Yeah. I mean, I I do this for a living. Yeah. Unfortunately, the people who would vote for city council, you know, they they have they use slip-on shoes because tying your laces is difficult, and uh, <laughs> and they're petulant. And they were petulant because, because Continental was absorbed in the United. And so you think that's what this is about, that people in Houston are mad that Continental's yeah. global headquarters went to Chicago, Absolutely. and so we're going to stick it to you guys by allowing that, Southwest that vote, your... that vote was probably mostly that, because it made no economic sense, because that business right. model is not replicated anywhere in the world. Right. No one's ever done it. You know why? Because it's stupid. Because it's a bad idea. Okay. Uh, we have about... 12, 13 minutes, and we have a, an intimate but robust crowd. And I want to invite <laughs> anybody in the room to ask questions. You know, could stand at the mic, or you could just raise your hand and use your outside voice if you don't mind. Yes. Sir, and then there, and then there. I Sir. Was in New York City on Tuesday. I read in the uh, Dick Wall Street Journal that the airlines wanted to increase prices. I'm going to make a flight next March. Should I buy my ticket now before the price increases? Tell me what oil is going to do, and I'll tell you the answer. No. <laughs> That's really, that's really the issue? It, it really is 100% yep. that. I mean, it, you're kind of like, you can't raise prices if no one else will raise prices. But oil, oil is the driver, right? And after 9-11, Southwest, which is a really smart company, bought oil futures. Yes, that saved them, didn't it? Yeah, and they had the money to make the bet where we didn't. Yep. And so they continued to price their tickets at $30 oil while oil went north of 50 that put United out of business, Delta out of business, Northwest yep. out of business. Didn't put us out of business because 50% of our flights were international and Southwest couldn't screw those markets. So we got past that. Those hedges are gone now at Southwest. Southwest has one of the highest labor costs and they, their oil is the same as everybody else's oil. If oil goes up, prices are gonna go up. If oil comes down, prices will go down just because of the competitive. I wish I knew the answer because I'd go lay some bets, you know, but. Yeah. I can't tell you the answer. You just make a bet. Sir. Do you see any changes coming with the right amendment uh, going away in a couple of years? No, because in the right amendment, it specifically says you can't do international. And, the, not, and the, the disappearance of the right amendment doesn't remove that restriction. So that's how the city of Houston got conned, because they should have put that in there too, but yeah. they weren't that bright. And I, you know, unfortunately. Uh, Mr. Cryer, Judge. Gordon, uh, earlier, I, when I ran the chamber, you were instrumental in giving us advice on getting a nonstop from San Antonio to Newark, which we still have today because we took your advice. But, but that issue relates to a comment you made a minute ago about airports competing with each other. Uh, San Antonio and Austin have, from time to time, talked about a shared international airport somewhere between us. In 25 years, the brand new Austin airport will be old. The brand new 
San Antonio concourses will be old. Should those city, would it be an, an advantage for those cities to start exploring that issue again? Because if you're going to do it, it would take 25 years to get through yeah. the environmental. San Marcos International Airport sounds yeah. pretty yeah. good, right? Yeah. <laughs> My advice is you work on San Antonio and take care of San Antonio. Nobody wants to fly mid, midway between Austin and San Antonio and take a train when you can get a nonstop. God, you'd have to build else. a train first. That's right. another that's whole there, So I'm talking about it. So they like to talk about in Washington State having a, a high-speed train to the middle of Washington State, for, but nobody's going to want to go 40 miles on a train to get to where they want to go. They'll just take the airplane that's going there in the well, first Well, place. Gordon, I might actually take issue with that because if I want to fly out of Austin to an awful lot of places that I can't fly to in Austin, San Antonio is, in fact, an option, and the savings of time to be able to fly direct from San Antonio to some place might be worth the trip down 70 miles in well, the car. You'd be going to, you, you, right. you, you're going to go through security twice. <laughs> Let me tell you, it's not that easy because you're changing modes of transportation. I'm not saying that it's not doable, yeah. but it's not competitive. Right. What you can do is fly from Austin to, to Houston and stay in the same concourse and make not have to and, go and we set those flights up so it's available to you. It's called O&D, origin and destination. Houston is enough people where standing on its own, six million people can kind of uphold the flight and then add the Lafayette and add the Corpus Christi, so now it's full. Yep. It's really hard in Austin to find 20 people that want to go to Europe every night. And so you really don't have the base of the population. What you do is, though, is you, that answer won't fix what you, what you want it to fix. What you need is more people in San Antonio. And to do that, like you did with us, you got New York service. That made San Antonio a better place to do business because you can get to New York every day, nonstop. And that's how cities grow. But, but to the judge's point, sir, before you get your question, isn't it true that you guys have killed rail in Texas? Isn't it true that the airline lobby has made it so that high-speed rail is not something that we have available to us? Well, I'm not sure. I think that they voted, one, their best interest, which is what we all tend to do, yeah. number two, uh, Rail really doesn't, I mean, Amtrak loses millions and millions of dollars, and they're in the northeast quarter, which is really high density. So to think that San Marcos down to the Rio Grande Valley is going to make money, I mean, you've got to be smoking crack. Okay? <laughs> it's just not enough people. But what, to, about, what about Austin and Dallas or Houston and Dallas? If you, as they're now discussing, again, a high-speed, some kind of a bullet train between those cities, wouldn't yeah. that be an additional element that we would like to have here in Texas? I think so, but if you take a look at our economy and the cost of capital and where we're best to invest our money, that's not the best place to invest your money. You have high-frequency air transportation that is really dirt cheap. And what does it cost to build a railroad? What does it cost to run one? Right? And at the end of the day, who can afford to buy those tickets? The answer is no one. Not anybody that wants to go from Dallas to Austin and just drive your damn car. And that's how Herb made his money. He took you out of the car and put you in an airplane. It's getting tougher to do that, though, though no, today. I, I'm, I'm to, personally, I'm back in the car. Uh, because of the cost of oil and the, right. and the hassle of the TSA and the security. I'd rather, honestly, if the choice is fly to Houston or drive to Houston, at this point, it's not a choice. And, and here's a couple of people that, 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 that do that so. every day. Sir. Why is it, that with the exception of Southwest, that I feel like I'm an enemy of the airlines? It's the only industry I know of where the customer seems to be the enemy. Well, you know, it's hard that you brush a people or a industry as the airline. And if you tell me the stock ticker symbol for that airline, one's a Dallas, one's a United, one's an American. So 
they're not all the same. And we won more J.D. Power awards than any other airline, including Southwest. And you win J.D. Power by kissing people's butt and treating them right. So I wouldn't say that we ever treated you as the enemy. If we did, I apologize. But it's the fact that profit sharing made you a plus. And that's why we won those awards. And Southwest, you probably fly Southwest, but, but you know, I, and I, too bad that you have to do that. But I mean, uh, Continental actually outperformed Southwest. Outperform now Southwest refused, pardon? Well, I'm not sure they're gone. They may even have different names on them now. I, there's a secret you can do. I'm going to tell you how to do this. Now I'll probably get shot. Okay, good. Everybody sit up and listen. Oh, so you, when you're on your computer and you're looking and it says United Flight to so-and-so, look at the airplane. If the airplane's a Boeing 737, it'll be the old Continental people because United didn't operate that. If it says Airbus, it'll be the old United people. So if you really want to fly Continental, just go Continental, United Flight, so-and-so, and look at the airplane, and you'll know who you're on. Somebody <laughs> tweet that, please. <laughs> <laughs> Ma'am. Uh, I'm glad you brought up the issue of the aircraft. Um, tomorrow we're flying to New Zealand, and in order to get there, we had to contort ourselves not to be on an express jet just to get to the departure city. Um, just as a... Those are those cigars with seats, right? Right. Those As long? a consumer, um, my husband and I are, are nervous about the express, the smaller planes um, from a safety point of view. And I don't know, is that completely erroneous? Are we yeah. right to be concerned? I, I'm concerned about the crews that are on those planes, the hours they're flying, whether or not they have the same kind of rest and layover and training as they do on the great big jets. Well, first of all, everybody has to follow the Federal Air Regulations uniformly. So that means cruise standards, qualifications, all the same. Doesn't culture. matter which Air transport category, yeah. right. Now what happened, in, and what happened in technology, you guys might have forgotten, but that express jet airplane used to be a propeller. Remember when you had to go to San Corpus Christi, it was a goddamn, pardon me, propeller airplane. And what it did is let Lafayette, Louisiana have jet service. Never had it before. And so we bought 250 of those. We took over Mexico. Houston flies to has 34 cities they connect to in Mexico with express jets, right? Those guys are part of us, same standards, same qualifications. That Embraer 145 is a very, very reliable airplane. Now, it may not be the most comfortable airplane, but it's not made to go to New Zealand. It's only made to get you to Houston or someplace. And, but we put Mexicana out of business because Continental flew to more Mexican cities than the Mexican Airlines did and bring those people to Houston on their way to Paris. So I would never be afraid to get on an express jet airplane. The crews have very, very high confidence. Some of those guys are 30 years, 20 years captains. We're talking about 20,000 hours. And that, they like that, and they, they, they like that kind of flying. Yeah. The airplane's fine. Man. No first class is its problem, no, and it's no, 50 no, seats. No and first 50 class. Seats. Right. And, and it's, it's a little, and honestly, if you're a claustrophobic person, yeah. it's a little tight in those planes. But your, your, your alternative before was to get on a propeller jet. Yeah, I'd rather do this. And so we're making progress, and, you're see, and you'll see the 50-seat express jet grow to 70 seats and have a small first class. You'll see it over the next 10 years. Do you think so? I know so. There will be a, a, small, there will be a first class on I this. think the big hook on the Continental United merger on the pilots is that United pilots were not restricted to 50 seats and above. So the Continental pilot agreement said that the Continental people flew any airplane 50 seats or more, more than 50. 
United's more than 70. When they merge the contract, it's going to be more than 70, so you'll see the 70 seat jet flown by the express jet people with four first class seats and a little wider cabin. More like a traditional little and, and you see that at Delta today and parts of United, so you're going to see. That's just going to be the new, if you want to compete, that's what's going to happen. We have time for one more, and we have one more. Okay. Perfect. Great. Um, you talked a lot about your competitors. Can you hear me? You talked a lot about your competitors, and we talked a lot about the Texas Airlines. Um, and Southwest has turned a profit for 38 consecutive years. So long before the fuel hedging and the city pairs were kind right. of tapped out, what do you think fundamentally sets them apart, and do you see them as a different type of competitor in the industry? Well, I, first of all, I think they had a lot of arrogant people and stupid people in the business. It tends to attract us, okay? And uh, Herb, to his credit, put, started that airline and treated his employees really well. And they treated their customers really well. And he used a business model of about 10% growth per year, which meant that he could absorb increased in cost at the high senior end because he has new entry people coming in at the low end. That business model, though, has kind of matured. There's no place to go now. He's got 500 airplanes. So they're looking for, that's why they're doing the international. They're a good company and they treat their employees right, but they do now have absolutely the highest labor cost in the business and they have no place to go in the domestic. That business model has matured where if you come into Austin, Houston, which they do, Continental or United now, United would be glad to slug it out with you in that market every day. So they can't buy their way into markets anymore. It used to be called the Southwest Effect, where the lower prices, the elasticity of the marketplace grew because they came in. Well, but they are expanding flights. You know, we added Austin to Portland this year uh, straight away, nonstop. We've added Austin to Newark, Austin to Washington. Doesn't mean it's profitable, and you see them pulling out of markets where they've said they try these things because they need to continue right. to look. They're looking. They're good people, but don't take it for granted. There's no autopilot for success. Just because they've been successful for 20 years doesn't mean they're going to be mean for 21. And I think they're working really hard on 21 and 22. And I wouldn't underestimate it. That guy's been really fine. You've been really patient, and we're going to squeeze you in. Thank you, Gordon. I appreciate that. That's customer service, by the way. It is. I'm flying back home to Seattle today, and yeah. I flew, I flew, um, I flew, is it United, Continental, whatever? United. Um, I've flown Continental before. The service was better before than it was now. Yeah. And so I wouldn't want to fly it again, in all honesty. But um, I will if it's convenient. But my question is, as someone who lives in a place where they manufacture airplanes, uh, and you guys used to only buy Boeing, uh, are there going to be more single, I mean, are, are airlines going to be double source or single source in the future, you think? Single source. They, uh, in United, just bought 150 more Boeing airplanes, which I endorse. But at the, at the end oh. of the day, it's chocolate and vanilla, okay? Some guy says chocolate's better than vanilla. And I said, no, it's different, okay? It's not better, it's different. Airbus is not better than Boeing, and Boeing's not better, they're different. You don't make any money by adding complexity for more inventory, more training, more operating, two types of equipment, when you really get economies of scale of operating, one kind of equipment. So while uh, you can see United's decided to push that rudder, and it'll be a Boeing customer. And being an old Boeing guy, I helped them push it. Before that. <laughs> uh, we are absolutely out of time. Uh, this has been so great. Thank you. I want to thank Gordon Bethune for coming in to see us. Wonderful conversation. We'll see you all around. I really just love this. It was